Well, it's been a great delight to be with you uh, this weekend and want to, again, bring you greetings from South Point Community Church. Uh, We're a young church. Uh, Our church exists very simply to make Jesus the unavoidable issue to all people and all things. And we're so glad uh, that we could participate through me and being part of what God is doing here at First Church. Uh, I want to invite you to look in your worship uh, guide and, and sort of fish out this, uh, the, the outline I want to use this morning. You'll see there, there are two very strange pictures of a young man whose wheelchair is caught in the grill of an 18-wheeler. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this guy. His name is Ben Carpenter. Ben has muscular dystrophy. He's 21 years old, and every day At about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he would go to the local 7-Eleven to get his big gulp Dr. Pepper. In fact, you see there, he is a pepper, it says so right on his t-shirt. He likes Dr. Pepper. Well, one particularly Wednesday afternoon, he went and got his uh, drink per usual practice. And as he left the 7-Eleven, he began to cross the street, and yet the light changed. Well, unseen uh, to the, uh, the, the, the driver of the big rig, he was sort of catacornered to the rig as the light changed, and the big rig started going forward. It pushed his wheelchair and locked it into the grill. Well, for over eight miles, Ben went on the ride of his life, going at speeds up to 60 miles an hour in a divided four-lane highway. Terrified motorists flooded the 911 center with distress calls talking about a person in a wheelchair caught in the grill of an 18-wheeler. At first, the operator didn't believe them, but finally, uh, a state patrolman happened to be nearby, saw the scene, pulled the truck driver over, approached the cab and said, do you know why I pulled you over? The guy says, I have no idea. He said, come out and look at this. (laughs) And there is poor Ben, seated at his wheelchair, the only problems was he wore his tires out and he spilled his big gulp. <laughs> the news asked him, what was that like? And he said, I don't know if I'd want to do that again, but by golly, that was the ride of my life. <laughs> you know, sometimes being caught up in God's kingdom can be like that. Before we finish up the missions conference, I want to set the tone for what I hope the next year between this missions conference and the next will be like for you as a church. As you get caught up in God's kingdom purpose to make all things new. To be reminded that we do not exist, you, me, this church, we don't exist for the benefit of ourselves. We exist for God's glory and for God's agenda, and for God's mission. And so this morning, I I wanted to look at a story in the book of Acts that I think puts things in perspective. It's found in the end of Acts chapter 7, and we're going to read through the first part of Acts chapter 8. Let me give you a little context for the scripture. Up to this point in the book of Acts, the, the apostles have been busy, and they've been faithful. They fill themselves with scripture and prayer and the Holy Spirit has filled them with his power. They've healed the sick. They've preached the gospel. They've endured persecution, all with great, uh, remarkable courage. They've been faithful. 
But they've also had some blind spots. Remember, Jesus told them to go to the nations, but up to this point in the book of Acts, they've not stepped outside of the city of Jerusalem. It's understandable on some level. I mean, gosh, they're having tremendous fruitfulness right there in the city, so why leave? But what about the rest of the world? Jesus' intention was to build a new nation, a new people, a, a nation without borders. And in this new nation called the church, no land and no race and no ethnicity and no gender is more holy or more treasured or any more gods than any other. As I often say in our church, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. But the apostles didn't see it. So God takes action. God always accomplishes his purposes. Sometimes he does it very quietly. Other times he does it with very potent intervention. Sometimes God accomplishes his purposes through the lives of willing people. Other times he does it when no one is willing or ready to serve. With that in mind, let's read God's word starting in Acts chapter 7, verse 54. When they heard this, that they would be the the Pharisees, a group of Judaizers, when they heard this, what they heard was Stephen's sermon and the application. They heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and they mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and and, uh, proclaimed the Christ there when the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did. They paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Did you notice the impetus for the first burst of mission? Nobody in the church said, Hey guys, this holy huddle is nice and warm and it feels good in here, but we've been neglecting God's mission. And don't forget, we exist for God's purposes and not our own. Didn't he say something about the nations? Maybe we should get moving. It's not what God did. It's not what happened, rather. 
God, God used the evil, sinful acts of the religious officials and Saul to accomplish his purposes. Now, now to anyone just sort of casually observing what's going on, this would have looked like a colossal setback. It all starts by Stephen. There he is. He stands his ground against the religious moral policeman. And he preaches a grace-centered, Jesus-saturated sermon. And the men respond to his sermon with a volley of stones and screams and shouts. They, They basically beat him to death with rocks. Now this would have absolutely shocked and devastated the church... Because Stephen was a key leader. And his death and the persecution that followed, it raised the stakes on this whole deal to another level. Now, now they'd been hassled by the religious officials before, but, but up to this time, it always seemed like they were coming out on top and they were winning. But now they're in serious trouble. Stephen is the very first person who'd actually died for this stuff. And that event unleashed an avalanche of more widespread persecution. You see, the earlier persecution had only targeted the leaders of the movement, but now it seems like it's open season on everybody. Verse 3 says, The persecution was spearheaded by a very zealous opponent of Jesus named Saul. It says there in the text that Saul ravaged the church. He went from house to house where suspected Christians would have been kicking in doors and dragging people off. It's very difficult for us as we sit in the secure safety of our nation with our freedoms and rights preserved by people who are bleeding and dying all over the hard places in the world. It's hard in the comfort of this room and the nice, comfortable cushion of your pew to think what that must have been like. But I want you to try. Can you try to put yourself in their shoes for a moment? Suppose you're a new Christian. For most of your life, you've been empty. You've been looking for meaning and purpose and security and peace, and you've never been able to find anything more than a fleeting shadow of this substance that your soul has longed for. But over the last few months, everything's changed. Your whole life has been transformed as you've come to put your faith in Jesus. And every day you've been meeting with the apostles and you've just soaked up everything you'd missed your entire life about the Messiah in your Jewish Bible. And you've been part of this amazing community with friendships and encouragement and your soul is full in a way you've never known. And for the first time, that unsettled rumbling that has defined your existence has given way to a deep-seated peace. Life's never been better. And there you are one evening around the dinner table with your family, and suddenly, without warning, the door is kicked off the hinges, and men rush in and beat you to the ground, and they grab your wife by the hair and throw her down, and they tie you up, and your kids are screaming at the top of their lungs, and they drag you off to prison to face who knows what. Verse 3 says that Saul ravaged the church. In the original language, the word ravaged uh, is in a verb tense that means that he ravaged and he kept on ravaging. The, the word itself 
suggest a, a certain sick, sadistic cruelty in the way he did it. He had a sick pleasure in what he was doing. He, he enjoyed going to work. The screams of children did not bother him in the least. Later in Acts, Paul would say of himself, his own personal testimony was that I persecuted followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. And so can you imagine what the church must have been thinking? They'd been winning up to this point, and they must have been thinking, this was not in the game plan. God, what are you doing? What's happening? Where have you gone? Maybe you feel the same way right now. You've been following God, learning, changing, things were going well, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the other shoe has dropped in your story. You feel like life has painted you into some desperate corner. Circumstances seem to be ravaging you. Your, your hope is caving in around you and your joy is being suffocated out of your heart by relentless demands and unexpected pain and unexplainable hardships. There you were, skating through life, sort of steadily going towards your preferred future. And suddenly you hit a serious detour that was not in your game plan. That's what happened to the church. But what we see this morning is that disappointment became their appointment with destiny. You see, along the way in all of our lives, there are lots of detours, divine detours. Where is it in your life? God bringing you to a seemingly dead end, an unfixable mess, an unhealable wound. Because anytime we come to the scriptures, we've got to connect the dots. Connecting the story we're reading with our story and then seeing the two in the bigger story of God's redemptive plan to advance his kingdom and make all things new. You've got to see the bigger story. And what we learn from this divine detour in the early church, it, it, you have to learn from this divine detour in the early church because we're going to experience them. That, that we've got to learn this. And so maybe right now you have circumstances and life situations that tell you that God's presence like Elvis has left the building and it is gone. And his power and his promises seem in the face of your circumstances to be wilting in your hands. We've got to see that the gospel will go forth unhindered in spite of our circumstances, in spite of our setbacks, in spite of our personal shortcomings. And with that in mind, I want to call your attention to three quick points from this passage that we learn. The first thing is this. In spite of detours, God's kingdom will be unhindered. This passage shapes our perspective on sufferings and setbacks and even the current political landscape because it shows us that a lot of times the way God advances his kingdom in our hearts and in the world is through detours. What we're tempted to see and interpret as the snuffing out of God's purposes is in fact just the opposite. 
some cold wind of trial comes and blows the embers of God's kingdom into more places to ignite more fires. Opposition is part of life and part of the response to the kingdom. But God can bend it to suit his purposes. You know, this is actually a great place in the book of Acts to zoom out and look at the bigger story that Dr. Luke, who wrote Acts, is trying to communicate. What is Acts all about? And how does this particular event unveil the bigger picture, the 50,000-foot view of the book of Acts? Well, to do that, we've got to go all the way to the end of the book of, the, uh, book of Acts and look at the last word in the whole book. And then from that last word, backtrack. They say last words are always the most significant. The last words are the lasting words. Interesting, the last words of Buddha were keep striving. Contrast that with the last words of Jesus who said, it is finished. And being from Macon, Georgia, I know the last three words of many are redneck. Hey, watch this. Acts chapter 28, verse 31, ends in a very bizarre fashion because it says the kingdom will go forth boldly and without hindrance. In the original language, it's a hanging sentence. It's a fragment, almost as if uh, Luke didn't finish the last sentence. It's grammatically poor. Here's what you have to understand. When the book of, Luke was, I'm sorry, when the book of Acts was written, Paul was under house arrest. Stephen had been killed. And so without hindrance doesn't mean without problems or trials. Opposition has always followed the work of God. And yet in spite of it all, the gospel is going to go forth unhindered into the entire world. When the book of Acts begins, there are a little over a hundred believers in the Lord Jesus. But if the gospel did its work, tens of thousands of people came to faith in Christ in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all of the Gentile lands. But what you see in the book of Acts is there was this external opposition to the growth of the kingdom. This external opposition, persecutions, beatings, death, imprisonment, they all threatened the spread of the gospel. But it wasn't just externally. Internally within the church, there was sinfulness and messiness and yet in spite of all these difficulties, Luke sums up the progress of the gospel by saying it is unhindered. If you follow the book of Acts, it's laid out in an interesting fashion. You have growth statements followed by persecution statements. And so in, in chapter 3 and 4, you see persecution from without following Pentecost. Uh, and then in chapter 4 and 5, you see satanic opposition from within with Ananias and Sapphira, and yet it continues to grow. And so in chapter 5, there's more persecution from without. And at the end of chapter 5, the gospel continues to grow. In chapter 5, again, you see persecution or, or, or messiness from within, where you have ethnic divisions between the Hellenists and the, uh, the, the Israeli Jews. And then the gospel continues to grow. And what you see that, that Luke is trying to say is that in spite of external persecution and in spite of internal tension, 
the advance of God's kingdom is unhindered. The gospel was, the gospel is, the gospel will always be unhindered. The book of Acts ends without ever telling us whether or not Paul is martyred. Because Luke was zooming out and just trying to communicate the fact that whatever happens to Paul, God's kingdom is going to go forward. His kingdom will ultimately be unhindered. The last words of Stephen show this. Did you see his last words? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Guess what? God answered that prayer in decisive fashion. Because this unhindered kingdom washed over Saul, melting his hard heart, and turned the great persecutor into the greatest missionary. You talk about a divine detour. Stephen was the main player in bringing the gospel to the Greek-speaking people and the Gentiles. And now he's been executed. But as he's being, as he's being killed, his parting shot to his executioner is to pray for him. And the very one giving approval to his death would end up becoming his successor in bringing the gospel to the Greeks. Augustine said that if, if Stephen wouldn't have prayed, the church wouldn't have had Paul. And even though Stephen had a small, short ministry through his impact on Paul, he's touched millions. Saul got caught up in this unhindered kingdom and it changed everything about him on the core level. He went from being a persecutor to being persecuted. He went from being a wolf to a sheep and then to a shepherd. But if you zoom out just a little bit further, there's even a bigger story at work here. Because Paul was a missionary. And as Paul traveled around the ancient Near East, where would he always start when he landed in a city? Do you remember where he would go first? Where would he go? To the synagogue. The question is, why were there synagogues all over the ancient Near East when the Jewish nation was sequestered to Israel? Let's back up 722 years further. When apostate Israel that would not respond to God's gracious offer of, of re repentance and redemption, and they killed prophet after prophet, and finally God said, enough, I'm done with you. And he raised up a great superpower called Assyria. And Assyria came like a steamroller from the east and totally amalgamated the ten tribes of Israel and scattered them all over and Israel was never heard from again. God knew. As they went, they would set up synagogues in little communities because even though that looked like a huge sovereign setback, it wasn't a sovereign setback. It was a sovereign set up because God knew exactly what he was going to do. He seeded the spread of his church through that first judgment. Nothing men can do can, can it stop the progress and the ultimate victory of the gospel. Within 300 years of this writing, in spite of state-sanctioned persecution that bordered on an extermination policy, the Caesar himself of the Roman Empire was converted. God marches through history using all things for the furtherance of his glory, kicking over things like the Iron Curtain and laughing at systems like communism that say he doesn't exist. 
Where does that give you hope? That, that, that you and your life and your little story has been caught up in something like this. That God has hitched your life to his unhindered kingdom. Where do you need to zoom out? Because when things go all wrong, God is God. And whatever our problems look like, God is not absent. And listen, answers to some of life's tragedies and traumas are hard to understand. And there are a lot of them that we may not understand this side of glory. But in the absence of answers, God is God and his kingdom is unhindered. So what does it mean for us here at First Press? I think it reminds us that we're not ultimately in the business of evangelism. We're not ultimately in the business of discipleship. We're not ultimately in the business of mercy ministry. We're called to be caught up in his agenda, in his business. And as the gospel goes forth from us, there will be greater opposition internally and externally. But God's purposes are bigger than the opposition. You know, the long history of this church has been one of throwing itself into the jet stream of God's kingdom advance. And in spite of all of our imperfections, and in spite of all of our mistakes, God has been true to his covenant promises he's made to us, and his kingdom has advanced both in us and through us. But our temptation, our great temptation will always be to stay comfortable. Our natural inertia will be to throttle back, to settle in, to hit cruise control, and to focus on maintaining the ground we've taken rather than continuing to ask the question, what does God have for us now? Because as Corey Ten Boone said, there is more for us in Christ than any of us have yet apprehended. In other words, none of us have touched bottom yet. Our temptation is to be satisfied with where we are rather than for longing for more of Christ because the beauty of God is He doesn't say you can only have this much of me. He says you can have as much of me as you want, or probably a better way to say it is you can have as much of me as you have the courage to receive. But we'll always struggle with being theologically fat and under-exercised. And we can gain many things as a church, as an organization. Gosh, we can gain more attendance, we can gain more buildings, slicker programs, but if we don't align our hearts with this unhindered kingdom then for whatever we are going to gain, we will lose God. History is full of great churches that have become museums and monuments to what was instead of a movement of God for what is and what will be. And the thing with churches is you can't just be a monument because monuments become mausoleums because God did not constitute the church that way. I remember thinking how stupid it would be for me to plant a church. I had a great day job at Perimeter. It was an awesome job. And I looked at all of the different variables, and it just didn't add up for me. And I remember thinking at some point, I've got to stop asking, is this possible? Because it didn't look to be. And instead, ask the question, is this God's will? 
Because if it's God's will, then I will see it become possible even though I don't always get it. And so the question is, what, what is our collective story going to be? Acts ends abruptly. And the reason it ends abruptly with that hanging sentence is that my life, your life, our life together is to write Acts 29. And knowing the fact that we're not doing this on our own good intentions, that we're, this church isn't held together by our collective ecclesiological rigor, but rather it is held together by the promise of God to build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. How does that truth free us to be bold with our lives? What, what would it mean for you to pray the most radical prayer in the world that we often recite without even thinking about it? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's the most radical prayer you could possibly pray. This gospel is unhindered. The second thing we see is that as we align our lives with God's unhindered kingdom, I'm sorry, we align our lives with God's unhindered kingdom as we live by faith. Did you notice how the early church... Somebody's being called into missions right now. <laughs> Did you notice how the early church responded to persecution? Without a doubt, they must have been terrified. I mean, how excited would you be if coming to church meant you got hassled by the cops? I mean, gosh, we have policemen here to help us walk across the street. But what did they do is they left their homes and lost all their possessions and lost their livelihood, and they faced going from being reputable citizens to becoming outlaws and pushed to the periphery of society. You know what they did? Verse 4 tells us, it says that they were spreading the gospel of the kingdom as they went. They didn't become victims, fixating on their detour. They hoped in this unhindered kingdom, and that belief made them more than refugees. It made them missionaries. And in the wake of their tears, they reshaped the entire spiritual geography of the Western world. They were carried out of their comfort zone on a wave of suffering. But they weren't victims. They lived by faith, and as they went out, they were met by God's power, the power of the unhindered kingdom. And so what we learn here is simply that God will bless those who dare to align themselves with his kingdom purposes. God's power has always followed the advances of faith. And so when they were run out of Jerusalem, these men and women preached the gospel, and it was there, there on the ragged edge of their desperation, that they began to know firsthand the power of God in a way they never had before. And what's true of them is true of us. As I said last night, the, the power of God, if you want to know where it is in your life, it's, it hovers over your frontiers. Where's the frontier of your life? Where are the places where God is calling you to do a radical reorg of your soul's desires? To re-edit your life around the center of God instead of trying to edit God to fit you? With your time, with your talent, with your treasure? If you feel like there's no power of God in your life, the question is, what are you really risking for God? Where are you sticking your neck out, him and lay, sticking your neck out for him and laying it on the line? Because here's the thing. For, for, for all of my theology, I, I, I know this to be true. 
that for most of us, God is just a theory. Now, he may be a very articulate, orthodox theory, but you don't, God doesn't become a personal reality to you until you begin to risk yourself for him and live on promise. And God wants to give you himself. For that reason, I feel like this text is teaching us, in some ways, it's sort of a holy taunt from God. A little bit of a, it's an invitation to say, don't you want to know me like this? Don't you want to know my reality? I mean, I, mean, I know, listen, I'm sometimes terrified that, um, that I might break God by leaning on him too hard. <laughs> You're not going to break him. In fact, the only way you're ever going to see how strong he is is to lean with all your heart. And so will you throw yourself into this jet stream? Will you throw yourself into this wild, raging river called the kingdom of God? Will you risk it? Because I'm here to tell you, you may well lose your security. You may well lose your predictability. You may well lose your agenda. And the little boat of your life may get knocked around in this raging river. But he's the Lord of the river. And for whatever else you lose, you will gain God. Lastly, we see this. Today's sorrows and setbacks will mean tomorrow's celebrations. If you're anything like me, the only time I move in my life is through compelling gain or awful pain. Almost nothing else really gets me going. We may not sometimes like it, but, but sometimes discomfort is the best thing for us because, as C.S. Lewis said, pain is an awfully effective microphone into our hearts from God. Much like the, this disaster for the church caused the gospel to be spread in the world, it's a lot of times through our own personal disasters that the gospel actually begins to spread and take root in our hearts. I mean, I want you to think about the things that have caused you to grow spiritually the most. How many of these things would you ever in a million years have written into your story if you would have been the author? I know I sure wouldn't have written most of mine into my story. But I want you to see that in verse 4 it says that they were were persecuted, they went forth preaching the gospel. And in verse 8 it says Philip went to Samaria and that there was great joy in that city. So what that means is that tears in Jerusalem meant joy in Samaria. And it was the exact opposite of what Satan intended with the persecution in trying to snuff out the light. He accomplished God's purposes by forcing it to spread. And we've got to remember that God is powerfully at work both when the sun is shining and when the dark foreboding clouds of providence loom over us. And that our weeping may well irrigate the soul, the soil of our souls in such a way that they are able to bear the sort of fruit that others can eat from and find joy. God's intention is that the nations would be glad, that the joy of the kingdom would spread. And your divine detour may just mean that though you sow in tears, others are going to reap harvests of righteousness. God's not going to waste your tears. God cried human tears. Jesus wept. God will wipe away every tear. What does it mean to begin to write Acts 29 in our story collectively? I think it starts with the faith promise pledge. 
I think you look at your eyes, you look at your life with eyes freshly minted from a passage like this and you ask yourself the question, what would it mean to weave the kingdom of God into my prayer life in a more intentional manner? What would it mean for me to, to go without something I like in order to give that money to those who need it desperately? To live simply so that others could simply live? What would it mean for my schedule this year? Maybe the vacation I'd plan needs to be in Haiti instead of Seaside or Rosemary. I don't know. I just ask you to listen to God and respond. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, I know that uh, you love us greatly. You love us far too much to have us dabbling around at this, that, and the other thing when you offer for us a great vacation at the seaside. Father, we confess we're often shaped far more by fear than by faith. We're often sidelined far more by our own personal failures and, and knowing how messed up we are than we are by your promise to finish what you start. Father, I don't know what faith would look like for us, but I know that without it, it's impossible to please you. And though we know we can't satisfy you through our faith, you, we, you, we're only satisfied through Christ, we can please you with it. And so as our Heavenly Father, who loves us more than you loved your last breath, we pray that we would offer ourselves afresh and are renewed to you. And we pray that we would see you as we step out in your promises. We ask this for your greater glory and our richer joy in the salvation of the nations. Amen.